want to extend the lights a bit and we'll get started. Shalom. Shalom. <laughs> Thank you for the kind welcome I always receive here in Guelph, and I'm, I'm delighted to be with you and uh, sharing with you this morning on uh, the letter to uh, Philemon. Uh, and uh, we should open with a word of prayer. Please turn with me to the letter if you have it in your Bible. Uh, it's right before the book of Hebrews, easily lost there, easily forgotten, hard to find unless you know what you're looking for. And um, I'm in the middle of writing a commentary on Philemon and uh, Colossians for the Messianic Jewish uh, uh, New Testament commentary series. So it's a, a letter I've gotten to know pretty well, both in English and Greek. So I have a, I've had good reason for wanting to share this with you this morning. Although I have to tell you, it is a favorite of mine. It has been for many, many years. In fact, I've been privileged to share this letter virtually around the globe from Berlin to LA, literally. So I am happy to share it here with you this morning. Let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that we learn here in this very unusual and very special uh, document, this remarkable insight into uh, a single life, a single, uh, a single circumstance, and yet one that captures hearts and, and, and ought to capture us and um, soften our hearts to one another. We often go, Lord, through challenges that cross generations, cross our circumstances, make life difficult. Help us, Father, to see in this situation something that will bless, open our eyes, give us some insight for our life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Sometime probably around the year 60, um, there were uh, two men on a road leaving Rome, headed for Asia Minor. Uh, they were traveling to um, uh, a number of cities. Ephesus, Laodicea, and Colossae are probably the cities they were headed to. But um, of these two men... One of them is going the wrong way. Two men are uh, Tychicus, a faithful servant of Paul, and with him is a fugitive slave called Onesimus. Onesimus uh, is a man in danger if he's found, because as a fugitive slave, he is, uh, he is in quite a bit of uh, peril if he's found in the wrong circumstances by the wrong person. Uh, 
if you want to have a sense of how far they're traveling, it's about 2,000 miles, uh, a huge distance in those days as it is today, all the way from Rome, as you see, uh, to Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey. And um, they will travel uh, by road and by boat. This is uh, not an unfamiliar journey uh, to Tychicus, who comes from uh, this uh, area. And they're headed here into uh, what is um, a, uh, a very um, well-populated, relatively uh, well-to-do area of the Roman Empire. Uh, Ephesus is a great uh, city, marvelous city, actually, uh, coastal city. Um, it leads by road to uh, this river called the Meander River. And if that, that term meander sounds familiar, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's not a mistake. Meander, our modern term, which, you know, means to kind of like wander, literally comes from that river, which kind of like literally wandered all its way through something called the Lycus Valley. The Lycus Valley uh, led first of all, through uh, uh, to Laodicea, and then to uh, this very fine city of Colossae. So um, they know where they're headed, and they're on their way because uh, we know that they were carrying letters from Paul. Um, now, I want to just step back for a minute. Why were they on their way there? First of all, Paul is in prison. He's in prison in Rome, and his uh, beloved friends in Ephesus are very concerned for him. He had spent some wonderful years in Ephesus, uh, about three years. Um, it's estimated somewhere in the um, uh, early uh, 50s. So it was really just within that decade he'd spent some years ministering there. And um, there were various suppositions of what may have happened to him. But what's most important is that out of his ministry, we know that uh, others spread the gospel like, uh, you know, just like some of the people he will mention in his letters. They will spread the gospel around, literally following the road that followed the Meander River, and they will establish significant churches, some of which are very familiar to us. All these churches, literally, which are reminiscent, of course, because of the uh, book of Revelation, all these churches were started because of the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. So this is a, an area that, that Paul knows and understands well. We also are still unsure about um, what Paul may have done in this area. We, we know that he lectured daily in Ephesus. That was part of, his, um, uh, part of his regular schedule. There was a place in Ephesus he used to uh, uh, do ministry. But we don't know if he traveled through the Lycus Valley. It is thought instead that many traveled to see him. In fact, the tradition was that all of Asia came to see him there. He was a, as some of you would know, he was a fiery speaker, great evangelist, 
people would come to hear him. And this is why it's thought that he might have known Philemon or Philemon. Philemon, of course, is the person who receives this letter. Now, um, let's, uh, let's take a look at the letter. Uh, it's brief. Paul, prisoner of Jesus Christ and Timothy, our dear brothers unto Philemon, our dear beloved and fellow worker, and to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in their house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's a very common opening to a letter. Who are these other characters, Aphia? Probably Aphia is Philemon's wife. Um, Archippus is thought to be one of two people. Either he's uh, Philemon's son, which would make a lot of sense once you get to know the rest of the story, and if not that, he is at least possibly a leader in the church, perhaps a teacher, perhaps he is an evangelist, an active evangelist, because we read in the book of Colossians that Archippus is to be encouraged in his gifts, in his faith. So um, these are people Paul seems to know, and it's, as I said, part of the story to know who they are. But take a look at how Paul commends himself to Philemon. I thank my God, making mention of the always in my prayers. Now, uh, here... Uh, the the here actually is a bit of a plural, so he's talking to everybody here. I, I love you all. I think of you all in my prayers. But then he becomes personal. Verse 5 actually is very personal. Hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Now, this is definitely personal. He's referring this to uh, Philemon. So he's addressing Philemon. And the question is, how does he know Philemon? Well, it's possible Philemon came to see him. It's possible that Philemon traveled up the Lycus Valley, not that far away. It's about 100 miles from uh, where Colossae to, um, uh, to, uh, to Ephesus. So it's, it's possible. That would be about a week's journey. Not unusual, quite reasonable, a week's journey to see, you know, perhaps this fiery evangelist. And Philemon could easily have done that. Philemon clearly is a man of wealth. So who is Onesimus? Because very quickly, we understand that there is a reason for sending this letter. Um, uh, I is now, I beseech thee, verse 10, for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. Who's Onesimus? Well, that's a really good question. Onesimus is one of the carriers of the letter. And he is a young man in trouble. We estimate that Onesimus probably was somewhere between the ages of 16 to 19. And um, he has 
a name that was very common for slaves. Uh, Onesimus here in, uh, in, in your Bible is profitable. It means it's, it's translated as profitable. In more uh, contemporary translations, it's translated as useful. This was a slave name, a traditional slave name. You didn't name a slave after one of the owners. You named them for what you expect to get out of them. And clearly, this is uh, a circumstance that demands some explanation. How is it that Paul and Onesimus get together? Philemon is 2,000 miles away. How does Onesimus get to Paul in Rome? Which is a very good question. Now, you need to understand something about slaves in Rome. First of all, um, slaves are uh, property. This man, had, if this young man had decided to flee away from home, not an unusual thing for you to do. He decided to do that. It might have been natural for him to run as far away as possible, especially if he decided that he didn't want to have anything more to do with his family. And it wouldn't be unusual for him to flee to a place where he could disappear. Some of you know, the interesting thing is, if you live in a small town, you cannot disappear. If you live in a small town near a big city, even though you think you might disappear, chances are somebody will recognize you sooner or later. But if you go to the biggest city at the center of the greatest empire of the time, chances of disappearing can be pretty good. And Onesimus may have been that kind of young man. In other words, he may have been fleeing for his life, or he may have been fleeing because he was unhappy. And let's face it, how many young people are unhappy in what seems to be even the best circumstances? So it's probably not too unlikely that Onesimus took off. Now, as soon as he leaves, he's a thief. But is he stolen? Himself. <laughs> he's property. But he probably did more than that. If he left the house, he probably needed some money to get himself wherever he was going, which means that he probably, you know, took some of the silver, probably took some, you know, something lying around. He is a thief. And if he's caught, the circumstances are terrible. What they did to thieves, what they did to escaped slaves. And remember, the Roman Empire had a huge proportion of slaves, all of whom they needed to keep under a, a very harsh and continuing oppression. So, Onesimus, if he was caught, would be, you know, put to terrible suffering uh, if they, if that was his master's decision. He could easily have been, first of all, branded with a huge F on his forehead. That was common. Another thing, of course, was uh, the kind of uh, 
hurtful uh, whipping that uh, would probably bring him within an inch of his life. Some uh, escaped slaves were crucified. So it, it was pretty, pretty, pretty terrible fate if you were caught. And Onesimus is under this, you know, he's, he's under this threat. He's under this peril if he is found. So what happens if you end up in Rome and you're a kid? Well, in Rome, there's free bread. The, um, the Romans were uh, smart enough to make sure that there were what we call bread and circuses. In other words, there was bread on the street. There, was, there were diversions for the mob, literally. And uh, he could have somehow made it. People think, how can a kid get from 2,000 miles away to Rome? Well, it happens all the time. In our society today, you know, kids run away and they get to very distant places. But they are always, they're like magnets towards big cities where they get into a lot of trouble. They get into a lot of trouble. The other thing, too, is that even if he's got a meager supply of bread, very quickly he will run out of money. How he will manage? Well, he obviously probably didn't manage too well. And the story would seem to be that somehow, either deliberately he is searching for Paul, or just as likely, somebody who has been traveling with Paul and spent time with Paul in Ephesus recognized him. Now, this is very interesting. It's possible then that Paul had traveled to Philemon's house. If he did, he would. that would be a reason why the people who knew Paul would recognize Onesimus. Another thing is that Onesimus may have traveled with Paul and heard, sorry, with, with Philemon and heard Paul. In that sense, perhaps he was attracted to Paul or he was attracted to the gospel. And third, and this is a third possibility, perhaps he, in desperation or feeling that he was not being treated properly, wanted to appeal to Paul to get help so that his master would treat him in the right way. So, all of these things circulate in our minds concerning the letter, and they are not resolved. And even the greatest, um, even the greatest exegetes of this letter wonder about all these things about this young man who has uh, obviously found himself in a circumstance, but in which Paul now desires to be an intercessor. And that is what you're looking at. You are not looking at just a letter. You are looking at a masterpiece of intercession. A masterpiece of intercession. That's really what this is. And Paul loves 
on asanas. That, that's the first thing. Paul is absolutely full of love as he intercedes for this young man. And he goes to no strong, you know, no minor ends to communicate this to Philemon. Now, the letter is very clever, and it's very well layered. So studying it in Greek even shows us how brilliantly Paul has laid out this intercession. First of all, what's his first description of Philemon? Philemon, you are a man known for your love. Isn't that a wonderful thing about you? By the way, let me appeal to you, first of all, for love's sake. Look at verse 9. For love's sake. You know, I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul, the aged, and now also prisoner of Christ. Listen to that. Oh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting old here. I'm a prisoner. I've got, I have nothing, but I'm appealing to you. And listen to that appeal. It's the appeal of fatherhood. Now, Paul has no children. Spiritual children, yes, but this is it. And I, listen, I, I, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. It's as if I gave birth to this young. He came to me. He was one person, but I saw him spiritually reborn in my presence, literally in my chains. What an appeal. He doesn't stop there. Listen to that slight appeal of humor. Who in time past was to be unprofitable. He wasn't, you know, his name didn't quite work. But now, now, now he is profitable to the enemy. And by the way, he's very clever the way he phrases it. He uses this phrase in Greek when he says he's profitable and Christos. Uh, doesn't use the name Onesimus. He, he, he kind of says he, it's the same word in Greek, by the way, but it instead slightly suggests he's now in Christ. He is uh, he is one of us now. He doesn't stop there. There's another appeal. Verse 12. Whom I have sent again, therefore thou receive him. That is mine own heart. Now, uh, some of you will have in your translations uh, something slightly differently because Paul actually doesn't use the word heart. The, the, the actual word in Greek is actually your, their, the innards. The, the ancient Greeks didn't think much of the heart, but they thought a lot of the bowels <laughs> as being the, the seat of affections. So uh, it, it, your translation will will say uh, one or the other. But the important thing is, when you receive him, it's as if you're receiving, you know, my very inner, you know, I am literally tearing myself apart to send, send him to you. But he doesn't stop there. He adds, you know, of course, he says, well, I, I could have kept him. He would have served me in, in, in your stead. But I... Here's the respect. But I would do nothing, nothing 
that thy benefit should not be, as it were, of necessity, but willingly. So, in other words, I, I would only do this. I would only have kept him here if you were willing for that to happen. Now, Paul is very smart. He does not send him back without an intercession. On the other hand, he really can't keep it. Legally, Paul cannot keep another man's property. Jewish ethical standards come in here because Paul has to be sensitive not only to Roman standards, but of course, he is also sensible to what he understands would be reasonable for another person. You have to understand what's going on here in the context. We are looking at a situation which is extremely difficult and touchy. We do not know the last time Paul saw Philip. We do not know what his situation is with Onesimus. Maybe Onesimus stole something that might have really caused Onesimus some difficulty. Also, by the way, this is a very touchy subject. How is it going to be handled? Jewish ethical standards require limiting a request to what's reasonable. So what's reasonable here? Well, what's reasonable is mercy. However, if you take a look at the Torah and take a look at what Leviticus says about how Israelites are to handle slaves, you'll notice this principle. Jewish people are not to be slaves again. God says to Israel, look, you can have slaves. Slaves are a necessity, you know, in these ancient cultures. Fine. And you're to treat them properly. But, but, your own people, you know, one of your own, they're not to be slaves like other people. You're to treat them like bonds people. You're to treat them like servants. And by the way, you don't keep them forever. You, don't, you can only keep them to the year of Jubilee anyway because, he says, they are mine. God says, Israel is mine. I made them mine. My slaves, my servants, you can't have them. <laughs> one another. Now, Onesimus is grafted in to the people of God. So that's that's another thought. Maybe, maybe Paul is saying, hey, wait a minute. You know, once, once Onesimus comes into the family of faith, maybe he has to be treated a little differently. That raises some very tough issues. But, you know, Paul here, his work is the work of an intercessor. Now, I'm going to step back for a minute. Because I've preached on this for a long time, let me tell you about what happened when I started preaching on this the first time. To me, this was not a letter that had a lot of complexities to it. To me, this was an obvious situation. Philemon is rich. He is a guy that has everything he needs. Philemon is a young guy who's run off. Paul is interceding. Ah, that's straightforward, right? 
kill him and do the right thing, forgive the young guy, move on, and uh, let's uh, let's just accept what has happened as one of those things, whatever reason Onesimus ran off, well, Paul has brought him to the faith. Now he's a brother in the faith. Can we all be friends? Can we all move on here? Well, I, I, I just couldn't imagine why anybody would ignore these appeals, mercy, fatherhood, even that cute, you know, appeal of mercy, of humor, the one of personal sacrifice. Yeah, Paul has done everything to, you know, make an appeal here. How can, how can Philemon say no? How can Philemon say no? Well, then I, then I had questions in time because I had to speak on this later. And I came back to Philemon many, many years later. And when I came back to speaking about this, I saw things very differently. Now, why did I see things differently? Let me tell you a little bit about Roman society. Roman society, you could not actually be a citizen until you were 40. 40 years old. That's right. I mean, you could be anything up to age 39, but you could not actually be a fully functioning citizen until the age of 40. Now, of course, I thought that was ridiculous and, 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 and an unimaginable uh, way of treating young people until I turned 40, and then, of course, it all made sense. I thought, yes, of course, this is the age of maturity. All those younger people, what do they know? I was, I was thinking to myself at the time, you know, something happens when you reach this age. It's not, it's, this is a, this is a certain age where you change in your thinking towards yourself. And there's another thing that happened too. I wasn't a young man anymore. When I first preached on this, I, I, I was a young missionary. I had almost, uh, you know, some bare salary. Uh, I told my salary sometimes to colleagues. It was embarrassing how, how small it was. And then I, 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 was, I was managing anyway, but that wasn't the case anymore. I was a parent, I was a father. I was, uh, I, you know, I was about to become a homeowner. I was in a very different stage of life. And I began to appreciate, wait a minute, Philemon is an older man. By the way, uh, the hints in here are that Philemon and uh, Paul are about the same age. So, actually, I began to think to myself, wait a minute. What does Paul know and what does Onesimus know about Philemon's faith? That's not so obvious here. And that's when I began to think about the seasons of faith. Some of us know what faith is like. We like to say it's always spring. 
we're when we're you know we're speaking of the gospel, we we speak as if it's always springtime in our faith. But the truth is, faith goes through highs and lows, ups downs, and sometimes it goes through winter. And during those times, we aren't we aren't believers quite the same way we were in the springtime. I remember the story of a pastor who used to describe what happened to his middle-aged men. He said, the middle-aged men, my congregation, as they got busier and busier, they would move to the back of the congregation slowly and then disappear. The weight of responsibilities, the busyness of life, eventually, you know, it would seem to make the lifeblood of faith freeze, and then they grew cold and moved on. And you wonder, what is Philemon's faith like? And why did Onesimus flee? The, um, the tough thing about the winter of faith is that we move from mercy to justice. And that is a great problem in middle age because, you know, when we're young, we, we, we know what we want, but we don't know what it costs. But by the time we're in our middle age, we know what everything costs and don't get all that much pleasure from it. <laughs> Quite the same way. We did when we were young. And justice. Justice sometimes becomes a priority in the winter of faith. Listen to these words from the prophet Malachi. And it talks really here about what will really mark the coming of Messiah. What will really mark what happens in the hearts of men when Messiah comes, when God comes into their midst. He says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And we call it simply Hayom, really. That's all it has to say in Hebrew. Hayom, this day. On that day, when Elijah comes. But what will mark that day? Look at what it says. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. You know, this kind of hard lack of love within families is really the breaking point of faith. And Paul is, as a follower of Messiah, he is supremely aware that Onesimus is in no way understood by Philemon as 
just another brother. But everything in this letter is saying to him, wait a minute. You may have to change your thinking. You will have to turn your heart to this young man as I have. You know, we all know the word, which is often told to me, which is... um, you know, in, in the Lord Jesus, there's no longer Jew nor Gentile. But then they often forget the next few phrases. Neither is there male nor female. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> but then it goes on and says, neither is there slave nor free. You realize that in that society, all those things seem to mark impenetrable boundaries between each other. Paul is saying, Philemon, in Christ, in the Lord, I want you to break a boundary that the rest of your society cannot That is what this letter is about. It's not about just a kid. It is about changing your thinking. And it's a very powerful intercession for that. And it also speaks to us in the 21st century. How do we sometimes change our thinking about the people who have hurt us, people who irritate us, people who seem separated from us because of the problems they caused us. By the way, Apphia, who is Philemon's wife, almost certainly, would have been responsible for the slaves, which means that when Philemon had to deal with Onesimus's uh, sudden departure, the person who would have probably been most upset would have been Apphia. In addition to that, Philemon also is now responsible for how he responds to the situation in front of the rest of the community. If he is a man of substance, everybody will be looking at him. Remember, the church meets in his house. And people will be saying, oh, gee whiz, how do these Christians treat their slaves? Especially if they run off. How could, you know, are they treating them really, you know, in a way that's proper for a Roman? All these issues are now, now weighing heavily on Philemon, who is supposed to be an upright citizen and a mature man of substance, leader, but how does he deal with this? Look how Paul breaks through. Look how he addresses this with the heart cry of a father. You know, 
the man who had begotten Onesimus his chance. One of the key words here is the word justice. And by the way, Paul doesn't use the word just justice. He uses the word logia, which means account. Accounted. Because what had happened was quite literally, you know, a theft and property. Nevertheless, take a look at what he does. I'm going to begin in verse 15. For perhaps he departed for a season, that thou shouldst receive him forever. Okay, he was gone for a while, but now I'm sending him back so that he can really stay. And not now as a servant, but above a servant. A brother, beloved, because especially to me. And how much more so to thee, both in flesh and in the Lord. Now, this is very unusual. It's a very unusual phrase. This is never used. I, very few exegetes can say, well, what's a brother in the flesh? As well as in the Lord. Paul doesn't ever refer to that sort of thing. You're, you're a brother in the flesh to me as well as in the Lord. Well, maybe I would say that if, if, if uh, you and I were, you know, born of the same mother. Unless, of course, Philemon was led to the Lord by Paul. And then Paul would be saying, well, you're just like brothers. You both were born out of my witness. Wouldn't that change things? Because you're not just brothers in the Lord. Maybe there's a brotherhood between you. Now, I told you the letter is brief, and I don't have to say any more, because it's obvious it's usually on one page. You know how the rest of these letters go on at length. And by the way, you know how complicated some of these letters are. Nevertheless, this letter moves at lightning speed. Everything happens real fast. By the way, take a look at verse 17, and you'll see how quickly he moves. If thou count me, therefore, a partner. Now, we have begun talking about Philemon as a partner in faith. In other words, he had begun with this saying, like, you know, you and I are working together in the Lord. Well, wait a minute. Receive him as myself. Now, this changes things. Receive him as if you were receiving me. Well, that's a little different. Uh-uh. We haven't even started yet. Take a look at verse 18. I want you to say, notice, if he hath wronged thee or oweth thee anything, put that on my account. And he says, logia, on my account. Now, if you have read Colossians, you know that that word, interestingly enough, is the same, virtually the same word that Paul uses to say that our account has been dealt with by Jesus who has paid it in full. But here he says, 
put that on my account as if I have paid it in full. And that is the interest. That's why this is a true intercession. He is saying here, you know what? Whatever Jesus has not done for you, imagine that I have done. Here Paul is taking the burden on himself. Some of you are familiar with that beautiful passage in Galatians 6.2, where uh, Paul says, specifically referring to the issue of burden bearing. And uh, I love to uh, I love to mention, he says, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law. You know, we are surrounded by people who drive us to the limit. Could have used another word there, but we are surrounded by people like that. And there are people also who have hurt us, people who have done things that irritated us to the end of the and degree, people who have pushed us and people who are unaware of how hurtful they've been. Like a teenage kid runs from home, couldn't possibly imagine how much hassle he is for Philemon, even when he's coming back. But Paul that is why, as the final stroke of intercession turns the letter into an IOU so quickly that nobody probably notices it until it happens. That's why the letter is brief. This is not just masterful intercession. This is all... <laughs> Absolutely saying, wait a minute, by the way, I am now writing this with my own hand. Look at what you've got in your hand. You do not have a letter. You have the active intercession of Paul for a young man who couldn't possibly have deserved that perhaps one of the greatest Christians of all time intercede for him with his own hand. That's what he does. If he has wronged thee or owes thee, owes thee anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. I will repay it. I owe you. Albeit, I do not say to thee, Although always done to me, even thy own self aside. Despite the fact that you probably owe me your own life anyway. <laughs> now here is where it seems he's calling him a brother in the flesh. You owe me your life because after all, I led you to the Lord. That would make sense of I led you to the Lord and here is a brother in the flesh. A person just like you. Here is a brother 
like yourself, born of the same father. And that could solve the issue. That could tell us what he's saying. You are brothers. I see you as brothers. Do you see me as a father? I see you and this slave as brothers. Can you imagine what an extraordinary what an extraordinary link that creates? Well, he's uh, he doesn't stay on this tone too long. He's very, very sure-footed. Paul is a bit of a genius of communication here. Yea, brother, <laughs> let me let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my heart. And by the way, again, very cleverly, uses the word onamem for that term, which here it's translated joy of thee in the Lord. Other translations will say, give me some benefit. But it really means the same thing. You know, let's move past this towards resolution and some good. Let us find the good in this situation, as difficult as it may have been. And then he adds this further note. Notice again. He stresses that something perhaps impossible is possible. Having confidence in your obedience. Now, where did obedience come from here? I'm not quite sure, except that Paul quietly and sure-footedly is simply saying, I expect... That you will do more than I, I have asked. Now that is intercession. Intercession by authority, but lightly given. Now, this, as I said, was a letter that I couldn't possibly understand all that well when I started it. But over time, I began to understand that this is a letter that speaks past just the situation between a slave and an owner, because it's telling us we sometimes have to move beyond extraordinary circumstances to give forgiveness. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is sacrifice. Forgiveness is obedience. And that is hard. Very hard. Many years ago, I heard one of the outstanding theologians of the 20th century gentleman called Wayne Gilkey. Gilkey was a, a brilliant uh, young man who had left Harvard, and while most of his contemporaries went to war, 
uh, he did something else. He went to teach English in China and ended up in a Japanese detention camp. He lived in horrible conditions, barely survived, and came back to the United States, grew in reputation, and by 1970, he was an outstanding theologian, able to speak to his classmates at Harvard as a commence, really a, a, a speaker um, when they were having a class reunion. Now, it was the class reunion of the 1940 class, 30 years. He looked around the room, a Harvard class of 1940. Can you imagine what that's like? He's looking around at CEOs. He's looking around at deans. He's looking around at people who are famous. And by the way, they're all thinking of one classmate who's not there. His name was John F. Kennedy. Kennedy had been in that class, and of course, you know what happened there. They're all sitting around, and they're all dealing with their own children, their own kids. As uh, some of us will remember 1970 better than others, <laughs> We know that that was the height of the era of Vietnam and the Vietnam protests. And some of us were well aware of that. And uh, I, when I went to school in college, I went to school with American draft dodgers. And some of you will remember that era and what that meant. But as Gilkey looks out on the class, he reminds them of a little secret. A little secret that nobody wanted to talk about, and it was this. In 1937, their class had done something together with all the students at Oxford. They had made something called the Oxford Pledge, in which they promised that they would not do what their fathers had done, which was to go to war in a European war and waste their lives for the sake of really doing nothing at all, really not changing the world at all, not really saving the world at all, but rather just perishing in another fiery apocalypse that would add up to nothing. They had all promised they would never go to war. Well, you know what they did in 1940. They all did that. And by 1941, the Americans totally committed themselves. And because of Pearl Harbor, all the class, all those classes, all those young people. He began to talk to his peers, he began to tell them, look not 
at our time as if we are so different from the young people that are marching in the streets today. And he says, and I remember him talking about this, how all over the room he could see wives elbowing their husbands and saying, you're going to let that kid back in the house. (laughs) Because in the end, the purpose of Messiah is to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children to their fathers. And how difficult that may be how tough it may be to break through those circumstances which seem to separate us so harshly, especially in seasons when we expect justice. And yet God brings us back to remember the springtime of mercy. I'm going to wrap up by telling you just one other little fact. In the year 61, we know this. Colossae and the rest of the Lycus Valley, Heropolis, were virtually destroyed by a terrible earthquake. An earthquake that probably shuttered the churches and changed all the circumstances. Today, Colossae, unlike Ephesus, has not been uh, excavated. Most of Colossae remains today as a mound, which means that whatever glories belong to that place are hidden from us. And at the same time, we do not know what may have happened to the home of Philemon. And there's questions about Onesimus, but there are a few things that history tells us. One is there was a bishop who rose up in Ephesus called Onesimus. And many of us think that this was the Onesimus to whom Paul witnessed so long before. And the interesting thing is the tradition is that Onesimus was the first compiler of all the letters of Paul, which explains why at the very back of all those letters, he inserted this other brief letter, which was a reminder of the springtime of his family. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are a God of mercy and not of justice. Because as David said, if you were to mark iniquities, who could stand? And yet there is mercy. And we have lots of reasons to demand justice or to demand 
acknowledgement of what we have paid and what we have done. But that's nothing. Jesus paid everything for us anyway, just as we sang today. But what we have we given him of mercy? How do we dealt with ourselves? Well, Lord, open our hearts. Open our hearts to you. What may you yet say to us? What may you say to us wherever we are in the journey? Wherever we are struggling, whatever we're struggling with, there's mercy for us. There's love for us. There's forgiveness. In a world that you have turned right side up where Smart-alecky teens are just as loved as stern and wealthy landowners. Where the body of Christ, where the whole of this wonderful family you've created, begins to understand a brotherhood and a sisterhood that comes because of that. Oh, Lord, teach us day by day just how remarkable is the depths of your love so that we might overcome all the barriers which keep us from loving one another as we are today. In Jesus' name we pray.